Welcome to Station to Station. My name is Simon Astaire. The rules are simple. The choice is of a train journey. It can be as long or short as you like. On the journey, our guest is asked 12 questions before they reach their destination. 12 questions that define a life. Our passenger today is Nikki Chin, the English songwriter who songs with Mike Chapman dominated the charts in the 1970s and early 1980s. The duo with producer Mickey Most created the glam rock sound that shaped a generation. They wrote hits such as Sweet's Blockbuster, The Ballroom Blitz, Teenage Rampage, as well as Susie Quattro's Can the Can, Devilgate Drive, and Mud's Tiger Feet and Lonely This Christmas. In recent years, Nicky has been very open with his battle with depression, which, in his words, is now more appropriately referred to as a bipolar disorder. He has said that being bipolar is a privilege which made him who he is. The only people who understand it are those who suffer from it. The best I could hope for was acceptance. Nicky Chin, welcome to Station to Station. Simon Astaire, nice to be on it with you. Well, it's very good to hear from you, Nikki. Um, I hope I'm not already embarrassing you, but I know you haven't been so well recently. And for you to make the effort to come and talk to me, I really appreciate it. Simon, it's a pleasure. For you, anything. Let's start by asking what journey you will take and why. I'm going to go from London to Antibes. It's a journey that I actually made many times with my parents when I was very young. They took a villa down there and the whole family went down. And it's my first memory of uh, sort of sunshine holidays. Since then, as an adult, it's a journey I've made many times as well. Uh, London to the south of France, Vaunty, had a lot of fun, a lot of riotous times. It's a journey that uh, really appeals to me. It has its memories. It's certainly got its romance. And right now, March in London, the idea of being in the south of France is also very appealing, even though the weather might not be at its absolute best yet. When you were a boy and you went with your parents, where in the south of France did you head to? Uh, Antibes. And in your later years, it was Saint-Tropez, so um, I've heard. Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was Saint-Tropez. Much more fun than Antibes. And uh, spent a lot of time there. Um, I had a couple of holidays with my wife, uh, Vanessa. I remember the first time I went there with her. On one of the occasions I stayed was at the Biblos. And um, with the permission of the general manager, I decided to do um, a strip in the bar when it was absolute packed at about nine o'clock at night and jump into the pool from the bar. And they lowered me a glass of champagne. I came back through the hotel, had a towel there waiting for me. So I go that with, with my future wife, Vanessa, and I walk into the bar with her the first night we're there. And it's the same bar. And you go, oh, Mr. Shin. And she says, how does he know you so well? I said, well, there's a story attached to that. And I told her. So yeah, I had some great times in the south of France. So for me, this is a great journey to make. Whenever I go somewhere, like uh, now I'm married, uh, I went to this um, 
hotel in um, Palm Springs. And the barman said to me, oh, Sinus, there, welcome. You know, you're back. It's good to have you back. I think I said to my wife, I think all great barmen shouldn't actually ever recognize you again after you've been to the bar before. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They all got stories. The second question, are you going to something or are you going away from something? I'm going to something. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm going to warmer weather to get away. As you said, I haven't been that well. And just a, a, a break. Unfortunately, recently, as you know, I lost my wife uh, in November when she passed away. And it'll be just nice to kind of get away from this country, actually, and uh, spend some time in different surroundings. Did you ever feel as a young man that you were born in the wrong country? I mean, when you went to like the south of France and you felt the warmth and you clearly enjoyed yourself. Did you feel that you really belonged there or did you have a sense of, no, I'm English and these are the places I visit? I always felt I was English and these were, these were the places I visited until later in life when I went to America and realised that that actually was a place I'd quite like to live. But on holidays, no, I always felt English. I'm on holiday. I'm coming back from holiday. And uh, yeah, it was always a, a holiday destination. As a boy, I went to the south of France, and uh, my grandparents lived just outside uh, Cannes, near Jouen les pins And um, I remember we somehow always got early morning flights to get back to England. You know, I'm talking about when I'm seven or eight. Yeah. And as I'm in the car and I'm going to the airport, I used to see these people unpack their sort of lilos and their, uh, you know, their newspapers and those little stores that they have by the sea, by the beach and can and everywhere. And I was always thinking, why am I going back? You know, why? They, they seem to have the perfect life here. And now I have to go back to England. Yeah, I never wanted to go back. No, never. <laughs> I still don't. <laughs> when you look out of the window from the train, what do you hope to see? To be honest with you, I don't have any preconception. There's nothing I hope to see. Actually, it's been the story of my life. I like to see what I see. And that may come in different configurations, different interpretations, depending perhaps on my frame of mind. So if I'm looking out, uh, it'll just be the first impression and how I interpret it. It's where my mood is at the time. So I don't hope to see anything. I'll see what I see. Do you think that, in a way, reflects your life? I mean, you became this very, very successful writer. Did you tend to, like, plan it out that you were going to meet Chapman in a nightclub and then you are going to write music and then you – I mean, obviously not the details and then you yeah. – it seems as if you've seen an opportunity and you've – just taking advantage of that opportunity. I think so. I mean, obviously, I couldn't catch Chapman in a nightclub. That was impossible because that was a, you know, you go to a nightclub, your writing partner for the next 12 years turns out to be a waiter there. That couldn't be planned. But the next lot of stuff, the way I met Mickey Most, that was all planned. None of it was by chance. Uh, um, and um, a lot of what I did was uh, was planned, yeah. Not meeting Mike, as I say, that that would have been impossible. Can we go back to that a little bit? Because a lot of people might not know. Mike Chapman was a waiter in Tramp Nightclub, which Correct. was a club that you used to frequent. 
Yes, I did. And did you connect with him immediately? I mean, was he like the waiter when, hey, uh, I'm a songwriter, I hear you write, can we get it together? Is it that sort of moment? What was the moment that you literally had that connection? That was basically it. I gather you're a songwriter, so am I. We sort of took a number of nights to get together and know each other a bit more. Um, when he said to me, uh, what do you think if we get together? And um, I've always been quite proud of the fact that I'm the kind of person that didn't say to myself, oh, well, you're a waiter. Why would I want to do that? I just went, yeah, absolutely. Great idea. Because I'd, I'd already done a movie, Girl in My Soup, which is how he found out I was a songwriter. And I just said to Mike immediately, yeah, why don't you come around on Saturday? Which he did. And where, where were you living at the time? I was living in Hill Street in, uh, in Mayfair. Do you think you connected immediately? Immediately. Really? There was an automatic chemistry. I think we wrote four songs on the same day. None of them were any good, but that wasn't the point. The point was the chemistry. And uh, we got on great. And I kind of knew immediately. I thought, do you know what? I found something here. This is going to happen. Really? You really felt that something was going to happen out of this partnership? Yeah, I did. I did. And you got in touch with Mickey Most, is that right? Did you just ring him up? Did you know him at the time or what? I didn't know him. Uh, I had to get his home phone number from somebody's secretary. Um, I took her out to lunch and plied her with a few glasses of wine and got her to give me his home phone number because I wanted to call him at home. It was just a an instinct of mine. If I get him at home, he's a captive audience. I didn't know him, but I knew of him. He was the man. He was one of the biggest producers in the world. You know, he'd done Donovan and Jeff Beck and Herman's Hermits and on and on and on. And the animals. He was the man. And I called him at home. And um, I mean, this was my level of belief. I said, Hi, Mickey. Uh, you don't know me. My name's Nicky Chin, and I write with Mike Chapman, and we write hits. And he said, do you? And I said, yeah, we do. And he said, well, what would you like me to do about it? And I said, I think it'd be a very good idea if you saw us. And again, this is a sign of a great man. He said, uh, how will 11.30 tomorrow morning suit you? So I said, we'll be there. And that's how that started. Yeah. And the two of you went, and, and you yeah. played your songs, did you? We played our songs. We played four songs. Anybody who knows what they're talking about, they know. They know if it's any good. They know if it's any bad. And halfway through the first four choruses, Mickey went, stop. No, don't make it. So we have one song left. And this was, this was it. Either it was going to happen or it wasn't. And halfway through the first chorus, just like the previous four, he went, stop. And he said, which one of you called me last night and told me you wrote hits? And I went, very, very hesitating. I went, well, I did. He said, well, you were right. And that was that. And what was the song? The song was called Tom Tom Turnaround. He had um, just signed a group, New World, that had won a talent show. He said, I'm going to record it with New World. Um, he asked us to go off and rewrite it lyrically. 
and we brought it back and he said, right, I'm going to record it with New World. And uh, went to number six. Um, and all of a sudden we had a hit. And that was calling Mickey most up at home and saying, we write hits. And, and months later, I did ask him, what made you see us? He said two things. I learned a long time ago, you never know what's around the corner. He said, and in this instance, I was right. He said, the other thing is, he said, I wanted to meet the guy who had the effing nerve to call me at nine o'clock at night at home and tell me he wrote hits. The other fascinating thing about that meeting, I'm just saying, he shared an office with Peter Grant, the manager of Led Zeppelin. So I walk in, I'm this fledgling with no experience to Mickey Most, one of the greatest producers in the world, and Peter Grant, the biggest rock manager in the world, and their desks are next to each other. And Peter was this larger than life in more ways than one. He was an enormous man. And of course, he was at very different ends of the musical spectrum to Mickey. And he would say to Mickey, I think you're wasting your effing time with those two. And, and Mickey would say, no, I don't think so. And it, 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 was, it was a different world. It really was. Mickey and Peter, and Peter lived in a castle with a moat round it uh, in the country. And he held a Led Zeppelin party. And we went down, Mickey and Chris and my girlfriend, Joe at the time, who I'm still very friendly with, to this castle with the moat and the drawbridge. And he had knights in armor on horses jousting outside. Uh, and for this kid from a Jewish home in London to suddenly see, oh, it was another world. It really was another world. It was a brilliant world. It was great. And all of a sudden, I was part of this world and I was having su success in it. One question about that meeting. When you had that number, or after that meeting, when you had that number six hit mm. with Mickey Most, did that in a way give you confidence, hey, I can do this? Or did you think you had that confidence beforehand? Was that hit the real drive that made you just really confident you could do these hits? I was a mix of confidence and bravado and huge insecurity. And it was always a question of which emotion would win. So I, it, it did give me some confidence, but then I would go from that into insecurity, oh, the next one isn't going to make it. But the one thing I always had was tremendous drive. I never, ever stopped going for the next hit. And there was something in me that thought it'll always be there. When someone like Susie Quattro emerged, did he ring you up, Mickey Mose, and say, I've got this singer called Susie Quattro, we need a song for it? Or did you write it and then he gave it to Susie Quattro? How did that relationship work on that? In the case of Susie, he found her in a band with her sisters in Detroit. She wasn't even the singer. He just knew. And he said, come to London and... Um, I will uh, make an album with you. And he made an album uh, and he wasn't happy with it. There was nothing about it. 
he particularly liked. Uh, and he called me and said, I've made an album with Susie, I'm going to scrap it. Will you and Mike uh, take her on? Um, I said, yeah, absolutely we will. And we wrote Can the Can for her. She came and then the song came. And it was perfect for her. It was another one. Another question on this journey. Who will you be traveling with? No one. You're on your own. Absolutely. You know, I lost my wife in November. This journey, in a way, is with her. She's not there, but she is. And this journey is with her. Um, so I don't need anybody. She'll be with me. What keepsake would you be taking on this journey from your life? What souvenir, what item of your life would you take with you? This will probably sound quite corny, but again, in the circumstances, I will take a photo of Vanessa. That's the only keepsake I would need. Do you know which photograph you would take? Absolutely, I do. In it, she is smiling, looking absolutely beautiful, radiant, and so happy. And so I'm taking her figuratively and her photo physically with me on this journey. When the train goes into a tunnel, what's your first thought? Dark. As you know, I've uh, suffered most of my life with uh, bipolar disorder. And um, dark, black, means uh, it's very, very significant to me. So, as we know, a tunnel is, as you say, it's total blackness. As a mood can be for me, total blackness. And when I go into a tunnel, that is my immediate trigger. It doesn't frighten me or depress me or do anything like that. It's just, what does it symbolize? What does it signify? Complete blackness. And I know complete blackness in ways that most people don't. Over the years, have you found the tools to deal with this? Oh, yes. I went into therapy, I went into analysis in my late 40s. That gave me the tools uh, to deal with all of, you know, I mean, in bipolar, I, I had to deal with hypermania uh, and mania as well. I have the, uh, the tools for all of that now. Um, it took me a long time to get them. I take medication. And um, I'm a huge believer that medication does not work without therapy. And therapy doesn't work without taking the medication. But therapy saved my life. So, yeah, I have the tools. Uh, I was... Um, very unwell about eight years ago. It's the last episode I had. I went into that episode having done a lot of therapy. And although I was very ill, uh, I had the tools to stay afloat. I had the tools to survive. When I didn't want to survive, I might add, I knew how to get through. Do you think this has been with you since you were a little boy and it's only through you getting older and understanding that uh, you know what's wrong with you? I was diagnosed at the age of 16. So okay. it's been with me openly that I knew about from the age of 16. I'm sure it was there with me before then, but it has been a massive feature of my life and has governed my life for better and for worse. My development, the way I am, uh, my creativity, my sense of empathy. And I now do a lot of work in the field for a charity called uh, Bipolar UK. 
I've now got the opportunity to give back and do some good, which gives me a lot of reward. But no, it's been a huge feature of my life. And uh, it wasn't even lurking in the background. From the age of 16, I knew all about it. And as you say, you there's no sort of warning sign. You just wake up in the morning and you feel a different person is the right is that the right way to put it that would be the right way to put it yes and a different person to the person that went to bed that night yes a different person to the one that went to bed my dog day starts in the middle of the night and i wake up a different person when i get high i'm also a different person it's nice to be in the middle which is where i am now that's the nice place to be because when i'm deeply depressed i'm a different person When I'm high and sped up, I'm a different person. Right now is where I like to be. So um, without being too personal, you must be a difficult person to live with. Very. Yeah, I mean, when when I'm well, I'm a great person to live with because um, I have a lot of self-insight, a lot of self-awareness, a lot of sense of empathy. But when I'm not well, when I'm depressed or high, because that's just as difficult for other people. I'm very difficult to live with, yes. Yeah, absolutely. A train is travelling in the opposite direction on this journey of yours. What do you see in the passing carriages? I may not even care, because are these people my business or not? The other train's going pretty fast. We're going pretty fast. It's a very, very brief glimpse. A look, will it make any impression? I think probably not, because it's too fleeting. So the train now stops at a station. This one is stopping for 10 minutes before it leaves. What are you going to do? Am I going to assume that there's a coffee shop uh, at the station? Absolutely, you can assume that. Yeah, then I will definitely go and get a cup of coffee. If there was a restaurant car on the train, I would have had my coffee and I would get off the train to get some fresh air, to walk up and down the platform, to take in the surroundings. There's always something interesting somewhere if you look. I would look as to who was on the platform. Did that person look interesting? Didn't they look interesting? I would take in the surroundings. Okay, so now you're back on the train, the train, you made it on time, you didn't get too carried away by being on the station looking at others and you got back onto the train and it's the last stage of your train journey so the next question is when you reflect on your life who would you like to say sorry to or thank you to no question again i would say thank you to vanessa my wife who passed away the best 28 years of my life the person who made me feel allowed me to feel a real person who put me in touch with love, real love, something I didn't feel I grew up with, but I found it in Vanessa. I found great joy. I found great times, great fun. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Vanessa. Nothing to apologize about. Wouldn't want to apologize to anybody. And by the way, I made some mistakes. I did things I wish I hadn't done. I said things I wish I hadn't said, but none of them merit the kind of apology as opposed to the kind of thank you 
but I would like to say to Vanessa. So it will be based on thank yous. So if you fall asleep, who do you trust from your life to wake you up before you reach your destination? Who's the one person you know wouldn't let you down and you'd be able to be awake? Well, bear in mind, I brought Vanessa with me on this journey. She would undoubtedly wake me up. She always had my back. She was always there for me. And when I wasn't well, she was there for me to wake me up. No question, Vanessa. Are there other people in your life that have galvanized that sort of trust? My brother, Trevor, 10 years older than me. We have an incredibly close relationship. We have great trust of each other. We have great love of each other. Mickey, uh, when he was alive, he died far too young at the age of 64. Uh, um, Mickey uh, was one of those people I would trust with my life. He uh, was a great friend. I loved him. He mentored me. He gave me a huge amount to my career. But a large part of that significance was also as a friend. And so he was the other person that um, meant uh, a huge uh, amount to me in my life. Uh, and as I say, I haven't had been, I, one of those people that have loads of very close friends. I know people who think they've got 30 or 40 really close friends. I've never been one of those. I just need very, very few. But they're the ones I trust totally. And trust is everything to me. You're about to get off the train. What would you leave for someone on your train seat? Undoubtedly, my life story. It is varied. It is exhilarating and depressing at the same time. I did a, uh, an interview with a new statesman a couple of years ago, and the headline that she wrote was, I've been fighting all my life. And I have indeed. I could have put in brackets, but I've been winning all my life. And that is, that, that, that's my life story. And anybody who picked that up after I'd left and read it would have a great read and an inspiring one. So we've now reached our destination and uh, the train has stopped in Antibes and you've got off your train. Who is meeting you? Who's here? No one. Absolutely no one. As I said at the beginning, this whole journey has been with Vanessa, figuratively speaking, but in my mind, my heart, it's been with her. So I don't need anybody to meet me. Do you feel Vanessa close to you now? Yes, oh, very, very. The way I'm talking to you about her, I can see a photo of her where I am anyway, so, you know, I can see it. Oh, very very, very close to me, uh, absolutely, uh, as I'm talking to you and about this, this whole journey. She's next to me, absolutely she is, yeah. Do you hope to meet her again? That is a question of what I believe in. Do I hope to meet her again? Absolutely I do. I'm not certain it's a part of my belief system. So do I hope I will? Oh, yeah, I do. Whether I will, I don't know. I'm not quite sure how all that happens, how it pans out. But uh, yeah, I hope I will. She has been easily 
the most significant person uh, in uh, in my life on every level. So yeah, I hope so. But if I don't, I've still been lucky enough to have had 28 years of her. So yeah, either way. Thank you for being this week's passenger. It's been a real honor to be in your company for half an hour or more. I'm really grateful. Well, I've enjoyed it very much, Simon. I really, really have. Thank you very much for having me as your guest. I've enjoyed it immensely.